Stay tuned for Occupied Territory with Mike Fader. All right, today we have uh, a guest on who's going to talk about a very extraordinary uh, legal development and situation in um, the home of the brave and the land of the free. And Will, she'll be with us in just a minute. Uh, if you uh, want to keep uh, abreast of what's going on here, if you want to follow the politics, I have a blog. If you're on Facebook, go to Occupied Territory on Facebook. And I post something there at least every day, sometimes twice a day. Occupied Territory on Facebook, and I'll be happy to hear your responses. Also, if you want to know more about what I do in the world on the radio, books I write, and things like that, and if you want to get in touch with me or be on my mailing list, go to my website. It's Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R, F-E-D-E-R, F-I-L-E-S dot com. And today we have a guest with us to talk about something that's happening out in Michigan. Basically, we have debtor's prison or the threat of debtor's prison in the United States. You might think that if you read Charles Dickens, it disappeared a long time ago, but apparently not. We have Jessica M. Eaglin, who's with us from the Brennan Center for Justice. Hi. Hi, how are you? Maybe we could uh, go over this. You know what? Actually, let me just give people a background on you, and then, then we can get into the case. Uh, Jessica Eaglin is uh, counsel in the Brennan Center's Justice Program. <clears throat> where she works on the uh, over-reliance on incarceration in the U.S. With expertise in sentencing and criminal justice legislation, she specializes in researching the broader toll of mass incarceration, reforming federal and state sentencing laws, and leads litigation efforts to reduce incarcerated populations. This is the case of a man who um, basically was unable to uh, to meet certain court-ordered obligations. And for that reason, because he was unable to meet them, even though it was impossible for him to meet them personally, uh, he uh, was ordered to be jailed for uh, not being able to meet these obligations. Is that what the case is? That's right. So uh, Mr. Bailey was um, on probation, and as part of his probation, he had to make um, a payment of restitution, and restitution means um, repaying um, fines for, uh, I guess, that, that um, affected the victims. And uh, he made payments towards his restitution during his period of probation, and unfortunately, uh, he couldn't make full restitution within the probation period. And as a result, the court uh, revoked his probation and sent him to prison. Um, and so the the situation here illustrates a larger problem that's been going on in Michigan uh, for a long time, which is that uh, individuals are being uh, incarcerated who are unable to pay the fees and the fines, what we call um, legal financial obligations. Mm -hmm. um, they're unable to make these legal financial obligations um, either at all or in the time period imposed by the court. 
um, and well, as a result are being thrown into um, jail and incarcerated and, and not able to even make money towards um, being able to pay um, these restitutions and other legal financial obligations back. What, was it a condition of his probation that he pay it back in a certain amount of time? Well, in fact, the, the court gave him a um, a payment plan, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually what uh, the Brennan Center advocates for, but the payment plan didn't take into consideration his current financial situation. And so he had a, a court-imposed, exactly a court-imposed time period where he would, um, where he would have to make full restitution, um, but the payments that he was making, he didn't make enough money to make that payment back the full payment back within mm-hmm. that time period. Was he being supervised um, by the court or by a probation officer? Did he inform them he wouldn't be able to do it? You know, I'm actually um, not going to opine on that. I know okay. that it was there was it, it was clear before um, he was put into prison that he wasn't making payments. I mean, he was making small payments, but uh, the amount of money that he was owing, it was clear that he wouldn't make it in the time period, uh, almost from the very beginning of the payments that he was making back. But he continually made payments towards um, the restitution, um, but he still had a large outstanding debt, um, and as a result, he was um, put into prison. And so the amicus brief that um, the Brennan Center filed, along with the ACLU of Michigan um, and the Michigan State Planning Body, um really advocates for uh, the Michigan Court of Appeals to set out clear criteria on how courts can determine whether a defendant is able to pay. Um, Because the ideal is that you want um, to facilitate individuals being able to pay back fees and fines um, if they're able to do so, but uh, without uh, imposing an undue burden on the individual that would result in exactly what happened here, where uh, this defendant ends up going back to prison because they're unable to make the payments. Well, now obviously that's clearly debtor's prison. I mean, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's what happened in uh, in Dickens' time and what he wrote about so um, beautifully and so mm-hmm. horribly. I mean, you know, you throw a guy in jail because he can't pay up. Well, what's the solution? He can't work to pay up then. Right. Exactly. I mean, there's no there's no there's no winning in them. Obviously it's but why I'm I'm understanding from other people that I've talked to about this in a, in a previous case uh, that is very much like this that was argued uh, I think last year and and actually in favor of the uh, defendant uh in this case that Michigan stands alone with this. So Michigan has been a leader um in imposing legal financial obligations um uh, that don't further the purposes of punishment um, and thus result in debtor prisons um, because uh, I think part of it is because Michigan um, has been cash-strapped. And in 1984, they became the first state to enact legislation allowing for the recovery of general incarceration costs from inmates. Hmm. Um, And it started a general trend towards um, seeking repayment or seeking financial um, resources from the actual defendants who are coming before um, the courts. And this, this, even though the Supreme Court has declared that debtor prisons are unconstitutional, it's a violation of the 14th Amendment, these practices um, can still arise if you don't have the correct 
procedural protections in there to ensure that individuals are actually getting the appropriate consideration of whether they're able to pay. So it's not enough to just say Mm -hmm. that a defendant um, needs to get a determination of whether they can pay these fees and fines. You actually have to, the courts need to look to what the defendant's actual situation is to determine if they can make the fines that are being imposed. And if they can't, then they need to look to other alternative ways for this individual to repay their debt to society. I mean, there's a value in restitution, and and there are certainly fines that um, will further the purposes of punishment in Mm -hmm. one way or another. Um, But there are other ways to enable a defendant to repay that debt to society other than imposing really high costs. So uh, a couple of the ways that we suggest is looking at an individual and saying, this is how much they have. Um, And and a a substantial burden on this individual might be X, Y, Z amount. Um, That's not going to be the same for every defendant. So a defendant who has large resources um, may appropriately be able to pay more um, in order to, in order to, to have some sort of, I guess, um, punitive impact. Right? Sure. Um, but when the vast majority of defendants are indigent in our criminal justice system, that's a reality in Michigan and across the country, um, a lot of individuals don't need high fines in order to feel the punitive effects of, um, of some sort of legal financial obligation. And so looking at what the defendant is actually capable of paying is a first step in terms of determining what an appropriate financial or what an appropriate mm-hmm. legal financial obligation should be, um, and then other individuals might not be able to pay fines at all. And for those individuals, um, some states have implemented community service as an alternative measure right. um, to repay the debt to society. So, giving your time, um, especially if that time um, is designed in a way that will benefit the individual, maybe give them, you know, employment. Um, experience it, that they can then go out in the in the community and, and further their reintegrative efforts to return to society um, as law abiding and um, I guess yeah, you know aside from individuals aside from the uh, moral and legal absurdity of this uh, and mm-hmm. you know it, it doesn't even seem cost effective on a practical basis I mean they, if you put somebody in prison in Michigan or anywhere else then the state has to pay for the upkeep right that's absolutely right so I I heard. Um, a reference a few days ago it was um, calling it was called trying to squeeze blood from a stone, right? Um, because you're seeking these finances, or you're seeking some sort of um, money from defendants, but the administrative cost to seeking these financial uh, recuperation is high. I mean, you've got to have the courts, you know, checking in on these individuals. You have probation officers checking in on these individuals. You've got the the criminal justice system now focusing their limited resources on recuperating often what might not ever um, come to bear in terms of um, legal financial obligations from individuals who just don't have the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so the state's spending a lot of money to just try and break even by recuperating the money. It's, and it's, if we could change the system so that they're not actually spending their resources in that way, we'd be saving money without even needing to recuperate the kind of finance. Well, it just makes uh, common sense, but <clears throat> if that's the way they figured out how to get money. I mean, it's, there's inter- something interesting here. It says um, Michigan routinely jails 
um, poor defendants who cannot pay court-ordered fines. And it says, as you mentioned before, the U.S. Supreme Court has previously ruled that uh, indigent individuals may not be incarcerated based on their inability to pay criminal. Uh, but what what I don't I I took it for granted that if the, if something was decided at the sort of a generic level, as a precedent-setting level at the Supreme Court, that state courts are supposed to go along with that? Are they ignoring precedents from the Supreme Court? No. Um, as I said before, so actually, recently, as recently as 2009, um, the Michigan Supreme Court also made a ruling in line with um, the Supreme Court precedent saying um, individuals, indigent uh, defendants should not be incarcerated for their failure to pay. Um, but as I said before, I think that the real problem here is that the courts don't have the proper procedure in place to determine whether somebody is actually able to pay. And a lot of the, a lot of the courts think that they have some sort of measurement, but it's not, um, it's not actually gauging whether defendants can pay. And so mm. uh, it's not necessarily intentionally um, incarcerating people in contradiction to the Supreme Court precedent. It's a matter of finding the right process to determine um, whether individuals can pay to be consistent with the constitutional guarantees that have been um, that have been declared by the Supreme Court. Well, that's a nice way to put it, except that they are putting people <laughs> in jail because they're poor. There, there was a right. case, I, you know, all due respect, but uh, there was a case um, that somebody told me about, actually, uh, somebody I know who was a University of Michigan Law School uh, graduate uh, and worked in the Innocence Project out there, mentioned a case, uh, maybe you're familiar with this, somebody named Celessa Lakeen. Uh, this is a woman who... Um, she spent years on felony probation and served 43 days in jail. And uh, what happened with this woman is um, she was um, uh, on complete disability before, uh, you know, mental problems. She was in uh, involuntary hospitalization. So she was on complete Social Security Administration disability. And then a problem happened. She had child support payments in Michigan of $100 a month. And they went to $1,000 a month because of a mistake. Right? Mm -hmm. So then she was jailed by um, by the Michigan state courts. Uh, and basically what they did was jail her uh, when she was completely unable to meet the requirements of her, uh, you know, of her erroneous child support. And what was even worse than that, I don't know if it has anything to do with this case, but maybe not. And I don't know what's wrong in Michigan, but uh, here what it says is that... Um, uh, held that failure to pay child support is a strict liability offense, meaning defendants were not allowed to prove that it would have been utterly impossible for them to comply with the law. They don't even get a chance to say that. That happens in Michigan? So I'm, you know, I'm actually not familiar with the case. I've, I've heard of several cases similar to that as well, and I know that um, inmates that are released face large amounts of fines, and, and child support is a very real problem because, of course, individuals aren't able to make money while they're incarcerated right. and then they're released and they have, you know, child support payments and arrears, and then on top of that, they have these fees and fines um, that are imposed by the courts. Um, and so the, the combination of all of these financial obligations will often lead to individuals being... Um, to returning, um, being drawn back into the criminal justice system without the, you know, real opportunity to um, get on their feet and reenter society successfully. So uh, you're uh, deliberately asking the court, the, so who would it be, like the administrative judge of the court or who, the legislature, who would set these rules that you want? 
Um, so the request that we have through the amicus brief is that the court, um, so the Court of Appeals is considering um, the appeal from the sentence uh, for Mr. Bailey. Mm -hmm. And we're asking that in the opinion, they set forth clear criteria oh, I see. that the courts, that the lower courts would have to follow saying that um, certain, uh, certain, I guess, um, characteristics or um, factors about an individual's financial situation would be definitive indications that they are not able to pay um, legal financial obligations or at least um, high legal financial obligations. And mm -hmm. those kinds of um, criteria that we suggested are things like the fact that somebody receives um, child or that somebody receives TANF, uh, the temporary assistance um, for and then other other factors like the whether they're um, whether they're under the poverty level or mm -hmm. right at the poverty level these kinds of factors that have already that the courts have already um, used as measures of indigent defense right so right. the fact that individuals defendants might come to court and they can't afford a defendant well they have criteria that they use in that context to say this person needs. Um, a public defender financed by the state. Um, and to take that criteria and put it into the context of whether an individual has the ability to pay financial uh, or legal financial obligations would, do, would be a huge step in terms of clarifying for the lower courts whether an individual actually has um, the ability to pay legal financial obligations in the first place. Well, it's probably some office that should set up. I, I was a probation officer in New York State, and um, oh. we didn't, we weren't taxed with that particular problem. We did investigations into the background of the um, uh, people who were already um, convicted to determine, mm -hmm. so it was a pre-sentencing report that we wrote. But mm -hmm. the idea, obviously, clearly, they're going to have to set up some kind of office or tax the probation officers with the task of investigating mm -hmm. this person's background because they can't just, I mean, I, I, it would be strange to just say, here's a bunch of rules, do they fit it or not, because it's always a personal situation. Let me ask you one more question. We're talking with Jessica M. Eaglin, who's from the Brennan Center for Justice. Since your expertise and your involvement is all about sentencing and over-incarceration and everything like that, there's a whole issue that's coming up, and we've read op-ed pieces about it recently in The Times and other places, of, of a whole huge prison population that is extremely ill and or over 60 or 70 or even 80 years old, languishing in jail, and the state supporting them. Uh, and it seems to be a movement, which I'm sure you're aware of, to just let these people go. I mean, do you have an opinion about this kind of thing? Um, so that's like a general movement that um, the states and, and now the federal government has also been um, seriously considering around compassionate release. So individuals who are too elderly um, or inca incapacitated because they're, you know, um, ill and releasing them or shortening their sentences. Uh, and I think that um, it's a reflection of a larger issue that occurred. This is this is a reflection of an issue that occurred in sentencing over 20 years ago. So as sentences became longer and longer, um, people were sent away, and, and now we're seeing a very large population. I mean, the gr fastest growing population is the elderly prisoner population um, that is uh, in in prison indefinitely, um, and that the costs that go along with incarcerating individuals. Um, that are that sick or that old um, is very problematic. Mm -hmm. And a way that now as states are so financially strapped, 
Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful release valve in terms of trying to release the pressures of over-incarceration. But it also makes sense in the terms that people grow out of their, um, um, I guess, their high rates of um, threat, their, their high risk of um, criminal offending. And when you're talking about an individual who, you know, might look like your grandfather in a prison that's walking around the same way that your grandfather might be walking around in a geriatric um, care facility. Oh, if they can this walk at all, because I've seen cases exactly. of prisoners in wheelchairs, too. I mean, if, exactly. Yeah, and we're talking about, and this, this is a moral, a moral discussion, I suppose, but it's limited, a moral discussion. I mean, these people may have committed the worst sorts of crimes, right, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. still, if they're like 75 or 80 years old, you have to kind of balance society's whatever it is, which you call it justice or vengeance, whatever you want to call it, or yeah. the appropriate payment for an awful crime uh, against this other stuff, right? Exactly. So um, society's desire to punish an individual and to make them pay for their, um, their past wrongdoings um, and also to ensure safety, right? So one of the major purposes of incarceration is to ensure public safety. Right. Um, and when you're talking about some of these offenders, I mean, as you said, someone who can't even walk at all, I mean, incarcerating them is a huge cost to, to society through taxpayer dollars. Um, and we're not necessarily getting a lot of benefit from it because these people don't pose a very serious threat in society anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, I think it's a great um, issue to be addressing because uh, states are, I mean, mass incarceration wreaks havoc and, and is a high cost to everyone um, through taxpayer dollars, through the loss of um, the ability for these individuals to participate in society. And I mean, in the case of fees and fines, we've got individuals who are not necessarily, um, you know, geriatric um, prisoners that would have the opportunity to go back into society and have jobs and be able to pay the restitution and pay uh, their, you know, court-ordered fines if mm -hmm. they had the opportunity to get jobs. But if you, we send them straight back to prison, um, we're losing that opportunity to even recuperate any costs at all. Um, and so being able to, at this moment, at this critical juncture where we have the financial or the budget constraints from the states, and we also right. have a growing movement of people saying that maybe we're maybe we're taking the wrong approach about crime. Reevaluating individuals who have been um, incarcerated for long periods of time, um, and you know, and are now aging completely, almost completely aged out of the most serious risk of um, reoffending is a great way, uh, or is a great step, I think, mm -hmm. um, in reevaluating the, the toll, the cost of mass incarceration. Well, the, the, the state, I guess, would just have to <clears throat> recalibrate its, um, I don't know, its moral foundation for why these people got such long sentences in the first place. I mean, that's a whole mm -hmm. discussion, but still in all, practically speaking, it makes sense to, to do mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And all a right. lot of those offenders, yeah. oh, sorry, one last no, thing, ahead. a lot of those offenders are um, nonviolent. I mean, right, right. Uh, Michigan is a wonderful example because, as you know, um, they had the 650 to life law um, where their drug sentences were, I mean, way out of proportion to other states. And so as you look at them now and they're struggling with a large prison population, part of that is because they have so many prisoners that are incarcerated for extended periods of time. Right. Um, California is another state that has that problem. They had the very strong or the very serious um, three-strike laws. And now they have a, a huge 
um, geriatric population. And this is, I mean, logically, of course, this makes sense because you've incarcerated so many people for these long sentences. Hmm. But as we see what those actual effects are, you have to reevaluate why we implemented um, those kind of sentencing laws in the first place. Yeah, well, I think something is, is, has to change. And, and sometimes, like uh, everything else in society, it'll change for the wrong reason, which is because it's, uh, it saves money or it's practical. Forget about the morals. But the, the morals will trot along afterwards and get in the right place. So the, what is it? The <laughs> moral come along together. <laughs> <laughs> the moral arc will bend one way or the other, even if it's to save money. All right, so uh, if people want to find out more about this, where would, they, where would they go to find out information about this? Um, the Brennan Center um, website. So we have, um, you can go to www.brennancenter.org. Mm-hmm. Um, the Justice Program has its own link underneath that website. So if you hit that, we do a lot of work around addressing the high cost of incarceration um, and trying to reduce the collateral effects of mass incarceration on both individuals who have been incarcerated and those who are caught up in the criminal justice system in other ways. So... Um, we'd be happy to have people check out our website. And feel free to contact me, too. Okay. Uh, everybody should just check out the Brennan Center uh, in general because uh, they have all kinds of uh, issues that they work on at the highest possible level, filing briefs in Supreme Court, too, uh, things that have to do with voting rights and you name it. It's a terrific place, Brennan Center for Justice, and it's a good thing that they're there. Um, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. You, too. Uh, let us take a break here. We're, you're listening to Occupied Territory uh, America on PRN.FM, and we're here every Thursday at 2 p.m. Uh, let's take a break, and we'll be back with another issue. Okay, we're back. This is Mike Fader, Occupied Territory America. If you want to check it out on Facebook, it's a daily blog I write, Facebook, Occupied Territory. Just Google those two things, Occupied Territory and Facebook, and currently we're writing about the issue I'm going to be mentioning in a little while. Also, go to my website. You want to find out what else I do in the world on the radio, books I've written, uh, various other things. And to get in touch with me, go to faderfiles.com, F-E-D-E-R. F-I-L-E-S dot com. So as I'm sitting here, as we're and you're, as you're sitting here listening to me, uh, we may actually have either A, uh, the president of the United States, you know, the president of the United States, that other country down in Washington, <laughs> the, one, the one where they ask you to vote for them every four years. The president of the United States may announce uh, his alleged proof of uh, the use of chemical weapons 
or the guilt, the guilty party who has used chemical weapons in Syria to kill perhaps even thousands of innocent people, which appears to have happened. It appears as if, and there's a UN, uh, I'm sure all of you are following, there's a UN investigatory team there right now uh, being uh, shot at, by the way, and also, by the way, interfered with by the United States of America. This is something a lot of people don't know about. Anyhow, against a tremendous number of obstacles, including the United States, this group of experts is going in, is in Syria right now, attempting to determine uh, whether chemical weapons were used and maybe even, based on what they are and how they were used, who did it? Because this is the big mystery right now in the world. Uh, was it uh, the forces of the Syrian lunatic dictator Assad or uh, the mass murderer Assad, or was it uh, a setup by people on the other side? There are people fighting on the other side <clears throat> in the Syrian fight for uh, whatever it is, independence, it's a civil war. And But there are people, there are many different kinds of people and groups of people fighting on the other side of this civil war. It's not like uh, the American Revolution was, to pick something out of the air, where there were different, uh, there were always factions and different groups of people, but they weren't, they didn't have completely different agendas uh, to be achieved when they got in power. They had... Uh, lots of disagreements about what kind of government we would have. And you can see this from the Federalist Papers and what happened afterwards. But essentially people who were sort of rather homogenous, who were Americans. You didn't have people from, uh, you know, the French were helping out. But you didn't have people from all over the world with their own agendas dropping into the United States to fight against the British. And I know this is a general parallel and there are holes in it. But nevertheless, in Syria right now, the opposition fighting for the last couple of years... And over 100,000 people have been killed. Probably 85 or 90,000 of them may even be um, innocent people. Um, the people who are fighting against uh, the dictatorship in, um, in Syria, a lot of them are people from uh, other countries with vastly different agendas who probably don't even care that much about the people in Syria. Furthermore, they may have ways of fighting uh, that uh, that we, this country or other countries, say that they don't approve of, even if they do it themselves. Bottom line is, we don't know who set this gas off. It could even be that if this gas was used, and it appears as if it was, because Doctors Without Borders, who seems to go into all these places uh, extra-legally, to, to just cross borders, as it says in their name, and they determine these things, and I trust them. I've supported this organization for a long time. They, they are, to my mind one of the most noble organizations on the face of the earth. And they take risks all the time. These are doctors who spend their lives or a good portion of their lives, dedicate time to going into countries where the worst possible danger exists and trying to help people regardless of who they are, what side they're on or anything. Innocent people, soldiers, whoever they are. They say that they're pretty sure that they saw symptoms of, um, of poison gas and it may actually be sarin nerve gas. It is possible now, today, as I mentioned earlier, the president is supposed to come out with a statement today announcing that uh, they have determined, I don't know exactly who it is he's going to say has determined, but uh, as far as the Americans are concerned, they are satisfied, not having a U.N. report submitted to them yet, that, uh, that uh, you know, poison gas was used, a weapon of mass destruction. They're going to find, the president's going to say he finds this outrageous and intolerable and uh, a, a crime against humanity, and he's going to probably order 
this may happen before the day is out or it may happen tomorrow, he's going to order uh, cruise missiles on uh, U.S. destroyers who are cruising in the eastern Mediterranean to launch, uh, to be launched against targets in uh, Syria, uh, which would be uh, theoretically, according to the uh, the military and to the president, they would be uh, pinpoint isolated targets that would uh, destroy Syria's ability to use these weapons. There is so much wrong with this that I would need another four hours to talk about it. However, I don't have four hours. The point is that um, the president is going to announce that he's got these results based on what I don't know. There was a whole article in the paper today. This is one of those issues, by the way, that I had that I find very complicated. The idea of of a large group of countries or the U.N. or even a small group of countries who have the ability and the power to do it interfering with mass murder and genocide inside a sovereign country, I don't think that's so cut and dried. I don't think that's such a simple issue to say yes or no or right or wrong about. I have to say, I'm thinking out loud here. But, uh, for instance, when Clinton sent troops into Somalia in 1993, which, uh, if you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, that's what that's all about, or if you've read that book. When he sent troops into Somalia, he sent troops in for whatever other, you know, political or, or corporate purposes we can only, you know, guess at or we can we can certainly conclude if we want to. But one reason he sent the troops in was that U.N. food distributions were being stolen, hijacked and resold by warlords in, uh, in Somalia who are nothing more than just uh, mafia on steroids, gangsters with uh, heavy weapons, right, who just shot people down and took the food away from them, or even attacked the UN, who was distributing the food, took the food away from them and used it as a method of gaining power or keeping power over other people. And they were murderers, uh, pure and simple, just absolute thugs. And the United States sent troops in to try to make sure that this food was distributed. In other words, to arrest or interfere and, you know, to put it bluntly, kill these, uh, these out-of-control thugs who were stealing the food. You know what? I approve of that. And did we have the right to send our troops in there? After all, the U.N. was in there already. We sent in a, sent on our own contingent who worked sort of with the U.N. But do we have the right? Does any one country have the right to go into any other country if it's not for purposes of self-defense? Do we, does any country in this, country, in, this, in this globe, on this planet, have the right, not in self-defense, to send troops in anywhere else, even if it's purely for uh, absolutely provable humanitarian reasons? And, you know, there's been many cases of this over the last 10, 20 years. There's Kosovo, uh, you know, other places where uh, one group of people who are in one country are slaughtering uh, tens of thousands, rape, you know, burning down whole towns and cities and villages, slaughtering people by the thousands, the tens of thousands. And usually it's for ethnic reasons or religious reasons. And then NATO will go in, like in Kosovo or something like that. Um, is it? Is it? And and they ignore the UN. A lot of times the UN has to vote on this. That's what the UN is there for. But then you have countries like Russia and China, which are mass murdering dictatorships, uh, that uh, that always veto these things. They sell, for instance, Russia and China are supplying weapons to Syria. They're supplying weapons to Syria. Do they do they care at all about the people in Syria? No. Do they have the same religious beliefs as the people in Syria? No. So why are they doing this? Because, as usual, you can only go back to the Cold War, you can go back hundreds of years. It's a gigantic chess game 
played by huge, powerful countries with big militaries and lots of uh, corporations and global aspirations. It's imperialism, colonialism, and corporate globalism. They play chess with smaller countries. And in their games of chess, look at Iraq and look at Vietnam and other places, millions of people get killed. Uh, millions of acres of uh, land, uh, tens of thousands of buildings are destroyed, blown up, burned to the ground, rendered uh, unusable for who knows how long. And this is what's going on over there now. So they can't go to the UN because Russia and China, uh, which support Syria, and uh, especially Russia, which is supplying weapons to Syria, uh, will vote no in the Security Council. So it'll be a question of uh, a NATO strike like it was in Libya. And uh, that may happen again. You, you know, you define somebody as a monster dictator, and usually you're right. Saddam Hussein was a monster. He was a kind of mini Hitler who, by the way, used poison gas on, um, you know, on the Kurds in northern Iraq and killed thousands of people, men, women, children, babies, right? Uh, and uh, nobody went in to do anything about it, but that was part of the build-up to the 1991 war. So that's, this has happened before, but this, is, this happens, it's happening even now all over the world, that dictators and uh, these psychotic leaders in various countries are murdering whole other tribes or religions or groups of people in their own countries. What is, what is the rationale except for the fact that you have the force and you can't stand to see people suffer like that and you send in your military? This is what happened in Libya. NATO attacked uh, Gaddafi. And a lot of people, including me, uh, with a lot of reservations, um, approved of this. Get rid of people like this. They're murdering their own people. Yet, and I'm asking questions here today more than making statements. Is that is that a right of like three or four or five or six countries to get together and just go all over the world and uh, pick countries where they don't like the leaders and get rid of them and bomb them and blow things up and destroy their armies? Is that a good thing to do? Uh, do you make a moral judgment in each particular case? There's an evolving theory of international law. There is no international law right now, by the way, which uh, permits or states in anywhere that's official, even at the UN or any place, that it's okay for a group of people like NATO or for one big country like the United States to take it upon itself to go into a sovereign country for humanitarian reasons and, uh, and destroy a regime like we did in Iraq. Uh, in Iraq, uh, they had this uh, bullshit thing. Was it uh, the um, convocation of the willing? <laughs> I don't know what a, whatever nonsense somebody came up with. Some speechwriter in the in the White House came up with uh, the coalition of the willing. I think it was called. So we had places like Togoland, and uh, I don't know three or four other countries that we bribed. That the United States bribed. They gave you know money to either the individuals who run these countries or the treasuries of these countries, so that they would uh, agree that we had to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Basically, the United States went and attacked Saddam Hussein for no reason whatsoever that had to do with the defense or the security of the United States of America. Turned out it was about based on a lie as well. And here's the point. When we come full circle, um, the, uh, you know, uh, Colin Powell stood in front of the United Nations and um, you know, the president and other people made speeches to everybody and to the American people and to the world. Um, backed up by uh, Bush's poodle, um, Tony Blair in England, uh, made speeches that they had absolute knowledge that Saddam Hussein, sound familiar? <laughs> Deja vu all over again? Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction 
And he may have actually had, you know, stockpiling of chemical weapons, but we don't know if he was going to use them or even if they were operative or not. But he had weapons of mass destruction that presented an imminent danger to fill in the blank. It's one of those warrants that you could just fill in anybody's name, right? And uh, we were going to, uh, and it was a threat to the United States of America. No, it wasn't, of course. And it turned out to be a lie. They never really found these weapons. What they were talking about in this case, which is why they were lying, is they said that he had nuclear weapons or he was building nuclear weapons or nuclear missiles, missiles capable of delivering nuclear weapons. He didn't have it. Cheney went over and manipulated the CIA to provide this information, and they gave him what, they, what he wanted because he could have had them all fired and locked up and sent to Guantanamo all by himself if he wanted to. Um, so they did what he wanted. Everybody lied to everybody. Colin Powell lied to the United Nations to his eternal shame and uh, based on falsified information. And the United States used it as an excuse to go into Iraq and destroy that country. And uh, hundreds of thousands of people were killed and other people made into refugees. So now the president today is going to make another speech. See, it doesn't really matter who the president is. People say to me, oh, Mike, you're a Democrat, you're a liberal, blah, blah, blah. The president, give me a break already with that. You know, I'm talking about the presidency, the executive is completely out of control in this country. Any one of 10 things that Obama has done in the last year are, are grounds for impeachment. And I'm not talking about having sex in the Oval Office. I'm talking about breaking the basic foundational rules of the Constitution. The president of the United States is going to address, probably, uh, although everybody's against him, by the way. The U.N. has not yet reported to him. In England right now, there are tremendous, huge demonstrations going on. There's so much public disgust and distaste for getting involved in Syria because the U.K. would go along if it was a NATO strike, right? And the, UN, the USA wants them to go along. There are so many huge demonstrations and there's so much disgust over there that that uh, the um, prime minister has referred the matter to parliament. Well, wouldn't it be nice if in the United States of America, where Congress, according to the Constitution and the founders, has the power to declare war because they represent the people of the United States, when they, had the con when they made up the Constitution, one thing they did not want was a king because that's exactly the problem. The king, at his imperial whim or will, could create any law, break any law, and cause anybody to be murdered by his, uh, by his army and his mercenaries. And what we have now is a king in this country. We have a man who is breaking the basic rules of the Constitution. Personally, I would impeach the man. And again, I want to make sure that you understand when I say the president, right now it's Barack Obama, but it doesn't matter anymore who the president is. It could be George Bush, it could be Marco Rubio, it could be Bill Clinton, and it has been all these people. All of these people, except for the ones that could be elected later on, uh, Carter, Johnson, uh, you know, go all the way back, starting, let's say, as a, a reasonable point, after World War II, the executive got so powerful and stayed so powerful that it has never gone backwards and now has become almost like a cancer, which has taken over the entire body of the American government, that uh, the checks and balances don't exist anymore. I was taught in school when I was growing up that you have to go to Congress, that the president has to go to Congress the way Roosevelt did and ask them for a declaration of war. There's got to be these are the representatives of the American people. Actually, of course, most of them work for, um, <clears throat> you know, GE and Exxon. But let's pretend they are the nominal representatives of the American people. You, me, right? Our tax money, 
They're the ones who have to pay for it. We're the ones who have to pay for it. So the president, uh, for various reasons, moral, economic, ethical, and everything else, we're talking about committing uh, you know, troops someplace or using our air forces or our navy where thousands of people will get killed, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, like in Vietnam. No, that doesn't happen anymore. Presidents, this is way before 9-11 too, have a blank check. They have a personal army now, just like King George had. I don't know what requirements Parliament had for King George to go to it and said he was using his army in India or in the United States. I doubt there were many. He did what he wanted and reported afterwards. And that's what we have now. We have a presidency that has drifted loose from the Constitution. So he's going to announce today, probably, uh, based on his own intelligence or the people that work for him, not the U.N. as far as I know, not the experts that were sent in uh, as a semblance of world order. He's going to announce that uh, the U.S. has determined that there were uh, chemical weapons used there. Now, remember, the last people who told us this to get into a war, you know, weapons of mass destruction, were the liars and murderers George Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and Colin Powell, all of whom should be wearing orange jumpsuits and chopping rocks someplace in a federal penitentiary. Those are the last people that lied to us about a war that has ruined our moral fiber in this country, whatever was remaining, which has uh, completely uh, drained the treasury and has caused the entire world to hate our guts. And believe me, this goes back further and further. The Gulf of Tonkin incident in which a couple of North Vietnamese gunboats were said to have attacked U.S. naval vessels in the Gulf of Tonkin, which is off China and Vietnam. In other words, we had our Navy right you know, within miles of the territory of Vietnam, where they were trying to have a revolution against French colonialists who had, uh, you know, had treated them in an abysmal fashion for 100 years or more. We had, we had our Navy threatening them right off the coast, and the Navy reported, and then President Johnson reported to Congress, this is like the Patriot Act or 9-11. He went to Congress and he said, uh, these, uh, these North, v- North Vietnamese naval vessels, can you imagine, attacked the U.S. Navy. First of all, what were we doing two miles offshore, 10 miles offshore, threatening them in the first place? We didn't belong there. Secondly, did they actually attack us? Thirdly, if they did, did they even get anywhere near us? This was used as an excuse for war, an insane, violent war in which thousands of towns and villages were burned to the ground. Uh, hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians were bombed from 20, 30,000 feet and blown to pieces, where millions of acres of farmland and forests were deforested using Agent Orange. The greatest war crime uh, that the United States has ever committed is in Vietnam, and it tops even Hiroshima, Right. The United States is going to – so the president is going to say, yes, we've determined his poison gas, and I'm going to allow uh, pinpoint Tomahawk cruise missiles. By the way, don't you love it that these cruise missiles, which cost, by the way, $1,500,000 each, and who's making how much money off that, right? It probably costs uh, 89 cents to make one of these things, right? <laughs> so they call them Tomahawk missiles. I love that. It's so perfect. The United States, the Europeans who take over the United States, you know, in the uh, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, etc., they, they, they commit mass murder, genocide, using, by the way, uh, weapons of mass destruction. They actually infected blankets. The army deliberately infected blankets with uh, various illnesses like smallpox, smallpox and killed off thousands and thousands of American Indians. The United States government committed genocide against American Indians. 
and now they're calling. They kill all the Indians, and now they're calling their missile a tomahawk. This country is psychotic, and it, it makes me feel angry that I am paying for it. The president is uh, going to announce that you know he's uh, satisfied that uh, there are chemical weapons over there, and they've been used in some evil fashion by the Syrian government. He's going to order tomahawk, tomahawk missiles, which, of course, he's convinced— after so many mistakes have been made and drones have killed so many innocent people, he's convinced that they could press a button, you know, 300, 500 miles away on some destroyer, and they will hit exactly where they're supposed to, and there'll be no collateral damage. No other people will get killed. What if these idiots press a button and the cruise missile, the Tomahawk, hits a chemical storage plant? Because I have no doubt that Assad has chemical weapons, right? So remember my earlier, the, my questions were, who has the right to go into a sovereign country when somebody's committing mass murder, like in Rwanda or uh, in, in some other place, right? I mean, who has the right to do that? What group of people? That's something that's an open discussion. You hope that the world would agree to it, but if they don't, who has the right to? But uh, here's, uh, how, many, uh, how much time do I have, Mr. Engineer? Five minutes, okay. So what's happening here is he's going to announce this, and he'll probably go ahead and he'll order these ships to fire these missiles into a sovereign country. It's the most it's the most insane thing that you could possibly do. Even Libya, which is a whole other discussion, was in North Africa, I don't know, like 1,500 miles from where this is or more, maybe 2,000 miles from where this is. So take a look at a map. Look where Syria is. It's, lighting, it's like lighting a match in the middle of a gunpowder factory. This country is right next to Turkey. It's not that far from Russia. It's right next to Iran. It's next to Iraq. I mean, really? You're going to launch missiles in there? The United States is just beginning, because of a new election in Iran, in Iran is just beginning to see the tide turn in terms of making uh, progress on nuclear weapons negotiations with Iran. But Iran is one of the main suppliers, to their shame, of the Syrian government of weapons, and uh, they've got their, uh, their little puppets, Hezbollah, fighting on the side of the Syrian government in, um, in, in uh, Syria. Iran has just finally, because after all this trouble, and they're going through a lot of trouble, the people who got elected, to try to work things out with the United States, right, and with other countries, with the world, about nuclear weapons. You think that's going to be, the, this is going to completely obliterate that. The first Tomahawk missile that hits Syria from a U.S. destroyer is going to ruin all that progress that took decades to make with, uh, with Iran. It's going to cause all kinds of troubles over there. It's insane to do this, and yet he's going to do it anyhow. Here's what it says in the New York Times the other day, and I want you to listen to this. Uh, the Obama, let's see, uh, um, let's see. Secretary of State Kerry said Monday that the use of chemical weapons and attacks on civilians in Syria last week was undeniable and that the Obama administration would hold the Syrian government accountable for a moral obscenity that has shocked the world's conscience. Um, the indiscriminate slaughter of civilians and the cynical efforts to cover up, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so, so the Obama administration will hold the Syrian government responsible. Later on it says, the White House was moving closer to a military response. And then it says in the next paragraph, President Obama has not made a final decision on military action. What's missing from this picture? The American people are missing from this picture. The Congress of the United States since when does the President of the United States have personal use of the armed forces that he can send anywhere and kill anybody he wants, invade any country he wants? This is what Hitler did. 
This is what Stalin did. This is what Mao did. This is what Saddam Hussein did. What distinguishes our president from any one of these um, out-of-control dictators in the world that we judge all the time as monsters if he is doing exactly the same thing? And you don't expect that in a place like that. In Russia, nobody expected Stalin to ask the people. You know, if he was going to send his armies across the border and invade Poland, nobody expected Hitler to ask the Germans what to do or, you know, or consult with them. But we expect, we're brought up to believe, and every four years we're supposed to vote for the lesser of two evils who's supposed to, according to the Constitution of the United States, ask Congress for permission, ask the American people for permission to send troops someplace to launch uh, weapons that could kill thousands of people. And the, uh, that's, that's, that's one part of it, is the president is out of control. The executive in this country is out of control. They are completely open to impeachment. I would vote for impeachment in a second, just as an example to all these presidents who have lost control of themselves. They spy on their own people. They commit um, atrocities, assassinations of their uh, elected leaders all over the world. They overthrow democratically elected governments. They blow up people uh, indiscriminately. They invade other countries. They send special ops troops all over the place. They have Guantanamo. An obscenity? Kerry? Obama? This is an obscenity? Hiroshima? Vietnam? Guantanamo? Iraq? Drones? These are not obscenities? This country is not as bad as the Roman Empire. It's not like the Nazis. It's not like, uh, you know, the Russians were in World War II. But I'll tell you something. When it comes to hypocrisy... When they write the history of the world, the roaches, when they take over and roaches learn how to write and they write the history of the world because there won't be any human beings left the way we're acting. When the bugs take over or the bacteria and they write the history of the world, they will use the word hypocrisy in the dictionary and right next to it, they'll say synonym, see the United States of America. We are constantly judging other countries and other monsters and dictators and administrations of other countries as, um, uh, you know, sinful evil, uh, and obscenity, committing obscenities that won't be tolerated. How about dropping two atomic bombs on completely innocent civilians and killing 200,000 Japanese men, women, and children in World War II, knowing that they were innocent? How about dropping more bombs that were dropped in World War II in Vietnam and Cambodia and killing hundreds of thousands of innocent people and destroying uh, you know, millions of acres of farmland and forest? Is that not an obscenity? Who are we to be throwing around words like obscenity with Guantanamo thriving right now? I mean, it's extraordinary. So I don't know. My attitude is that uh, we should not attack Syria, that it would be a big mistake. It's an open question, as I say, whether a group of people in the world, hopefully you would be with the UN, uh, you know, deal with, got to deal with Russia and China, uh, monsters all of their own. Um, you hope that the whole world would condemn this kind of behavior, right? And, uh, you know, uh, get together an army which represents the whole world and go in and say, or threaten these people, say, you better stop. They don't stop. You go in and you stop them. You can't allow this. On the other hand, uh, the United States going ahead and doing a thing like this is going to cause a tremendous amount of uh, uh, potential disaster in the world. It could lead to World War Three, And two, what's worse to me is, as an American, is that the president is out of control. He needs to be complete. He needs to be locked up so he can't even give an order to press these buttons to do this. The president does not have the right to go to war all over the place on his own. But everybody assumes that he does. No, he doesn't. He needs to be reined in and stopped. All right. We'll be back next week. 
Cause I went walking with an old hand.